We're going to read some scripture. We're going to split it up again. Go ahead and... You're first. I'm first. That's what, that's what it says. All right. Okay, we're going to read Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan River, you and all these people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised Moses. Just as I was with Moses, so I, be, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Good job, buddy. Thank you. Reading in public, not a big deal for a mayor. Anyway, so um, they say it's one of like the biggest fears, so I don't get that. I'm more afraid of other things. Spiders. But anyway, so we are going to take today and we're going to get up to Joshua. Next week we'll get into Joshua because there's a lot of stuff we have to understand before we get there if we're going to really get into it. So basically the passage we just read, God is saying, hey, you need to be strong and courageous because I'm giving you this promised land because I promised you fertility and flourishing. But unless you trust me, you don't stand a chance because in the promised land, the land of Canaan, there are big guys with big guns and they hate you. They want to kill you. What's your plan? You're going to go in there and you're fighting an enemy that you stand no chance against unless you trust me. Interesting. So their, their call to be, to be faithful and obedient was in step with God's promises for them. So that's kind of where we're going. In case you're wondering where you are, you're in church, right? This is Grace Life Bible Church. We value the, the grace of God. We value knowing God's word, which leads us to Jesus. We experience grace and forgiveness, and we extend grace and forgiveness, which, by the way, is hard, but we do that. And we grow in healthy relationships, which is amazing because we all have pain and baggage in our relationships because we live in a fallen world and that's okay. We find grace in that and then we then grow in healthy relationships and impact others near and far, whoever God brings to us. Okay, so that's kind of how we roll what we do. And today we're talking about fighting with faith or flight with fear. Fight or flight. You've heard that, right? When your, your adrenaline goes and, and you're, you're called to, to run or engage. And so, um, but with faith or with, with fear, that's kind of where we're going today. So, you can't experience grace, healthy relationships, or, or joy-based impact without knowing God and his word. And so that's, that's why we do what we do. So this is maybe kind of complex. I love charts, but we started with, with Genesis, actually with context. And we're just marching through the old covenant. We, we went creation, Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses. Now those little... That Noah had a covenant, Abraham had a covenant, Moses has a covenant. Today we're doing uh, kind of Joshua, but really up to Joshua. And there's a covenant coming up here in the future with David, but that's not for a couple of weeks. But that's, that's where we're going. 
I wanted to show you this too because we talk about the covenants a lot. I'm going to bring them up today. And I, I want to help you understand the, the connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And so I'm, I'm a pic, picture kind of guy. So maybe this will help. Maybe, maybe it's just confusing. But we, Noah's covenant had the sign of a rainbow. Um, Abraham's covenant, it was a covenant of promise. And then you have the Mosaic covenant that, that shows up after the Abrahamic covenant's already going. Remember, the Mosaic covenant doesn't replace the Abrahamic covenant. It's just a short-term thing that at the cross, it ends. That was the, the, the red X there on the cross of Jesus signifies the end of the Mosaic covenant. Jesus talked about that. Paul talked about that. But boy, oh boy, the Pharisees did not get that. When they have Paul saying, hey, you guys, the law is over. And they're like, you, are, you should be burned, all right? And so they, they didn't like that. Anyway, that's just one symbol, a sign of what's going on there. Okay, so I'm going to review a little bit. Uh, I only have, you know, 30 or 50 minutes a week with you, so I want to review, seriously, because there's a lot, I know a lot to take in. So Genesis starts off with, it's, it's good, right? Uh, it's formless and void. And if I asked you on a quiz, how did God take formless and void and change it to formed and full, you would say, through speech, he said, he said, and then Adam follows suit, and he names the animals, giving organization to where there was chaos. And then through Adam's silence, we had Adam and Eve, male and female, flourishing in love and respect, but then through his silence, chaos comes back into the world, and instead of love and respect, we have shame and blame. And the classic moment there is when God shows up, like God doesn't know, Adam, where are you? Oh, you're hiding. Hmm. Did, did you eat from the one tree? Because remember, there's a million yes trees and there's one no tree. You had to go to the no tree. Well, that woman that you gave me, so he starts to blame and shame, and that turns the love and respect into our experience of shame and blame. We can redeem that and we learn as men and women male and female, how to live in love and respect. But boy, we sometimes gravitate to shame and blame, right? And it's painful. And we ask Jesus to, we grow in healthy relationships. We experience grace. We extend it to those closest to us. And that is really a sign of spiritual maturity. Uh, but it doesn't happen overnight. Anyway, some key questions we, we saw that Genesis and Exodus are asking, who is God? Who are we? Who do we worship? Because they have, they're coming from Mesopotamia, where they worship a whole bunch of crazy gods, and they've been 400 years in Egypt where they worship Pharaoh, Ra, and the sun, and a whole bunch of other crazy gods. And so now they're coming out as God's people, but they are theologically a mess. And so Genesis and Exodus are corrective to help them understand who is God, who are we, who should we worship? Okay, that's kind of how he's, he's going on there. Well, Genesis answers that. They are not insignificant slaves. That was the answer of the culture they're in. Remember, uh, Marduk and all the Mesopotamian gods, those gods, they're man-made gods, right? Okay, but the man-made gods they came up with said, well, mankind, male and female, they're just slaves, insignificant slaves, to do the work that the gods didn't want to do. Well, that's not how God rolls. God is good and what he created is good. He's created male and female to work and worship. And that work and worship got perverted with sin. Sin shows up in chapter 3. And so ever since chapter 3, the rest of the Bible, a big long arc is trying to solve chapter 3. What are we doing with sin? So that's, that's how it's going. So, interesting verse here in the middle of chapter 3 of Genesis. After Adam and Eve sin, 
Here's a verse that says this. This is Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. See, they realized they were naked. They were ashamed because of sin. And they, they just grabbed some fig leaves. And they're, they're running around with fig leaves. I don't know how that works. But anyway, it didn't work well because God is like, there's a little sense of, of humor here. Because God like looks at them. He's like, guys, the fig leaves, that's not working. Let me make for you clothes. So he makes animal skins, which implies he killed an animal and made clothing out of them. Well, the shedding of the blood of the animal is covering their sin. Not permanently, but don't you see in that? that, that that's a picture of the, the coming animal sacrifice, the shedding of blood. And it's also a very distant picture of the perfect shedding of blood that the Son of God will do that will permanently cover the shim and their sin and shame. And so that's, that's interesting uh, right there. I guess the point I want to I just under, paint here, Adam and Eve experienced grace in the middle of their sin and shame. They will let that sink in. They didn't have to fix their lives. They didn't have to get all perfect before they could experience the grace of God. In the middle of their sin and shame, as Adam is saying, that woman that you gave me, and as Eve is saying, that serpent, and I'm never trusting you again, and all this stuff. In the middle of that, God approaches them and graciously says, let me help you. The gods of Mesopotamia never do that. Yahweh is different. Okay. Hebrews says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so we already see God painting in obscure strokes the future need for the shedding of sufficient and adequate and qualified blood to cover sin. Then we got to chapter 6, Noah the flood, everything's a mess. Noah was righteous and Noah received the grace of God and he built a boat for 120 years. And um, there was a sign of the covenant. God put it in the sky again. The, the gods of that day would, would hold back and would try to trick mankind and not give them information and keep them guessing, well, which God and this? And here, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, he is going out of his way to say, this is the sign of the covenant. You could lose it, but you won't because I'm putting it in the sky. You can never misplace it. You can never forget. I will not forget my promise to you. Again, Yahweh is different than the God's of the covenant uh, of the uh, Mesopotamia. Then we get to Genesis 12. We've seen this before. Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. God promises three key things. Land, a lot of offspring, and blessing. Now, the, the basic storyline is we need to get God's chosen people land so they can thrive as a nation, so that they can have a lot of offspring because one of those offspring is going to come and be a blessing for all families with an S, plural, of the earth. Gentiles, Jews, everybody. Again, that understanding was kind of narrow at first, but as, as people in the Old Testament kind of lived through, if you read through those, those chapters, the Old Testament, you start to see God is concerned about more people than just the Jews, and that's good news. That's actually why we're here, all right? So, that's what's going on there. Um, here is kind of a proportional comparison of Israel to Nebraska. Israel is small. If you're, gonna, if you're in Jerusalem and you go to the coast, it's about the distance from Lincoln to Omaha. All right? So, you know, many of you drive Lincoln to Omaha without a second thought, and that's Jerusalem to the coast. And so it's, it's a small area, but it's very significant because everybody goes through Israel, Canaan, the promised land. If you're going anywhere, you don't go through the desert because you die. 
So you have to go through, if you're in Egypt, you go through the Promised Land to get up to Asia Minor or over to Mesopotamia or vice versa. So, so God gave them this land because it's the intersection of the, wor- the world. He doesn't give them Madagascar. That would be safe. No traffic, no, no, no bad theology coming and going through Madagascar. There's nothing going, you're stuck. You, you've got the ocean. God wants people to know about him, so he puts his people where people are traveling. All right? Okay. The theological background. Genesis 12 and beyond starts in Ur, Padam Aram, and it's not the Ur down south in um, Mesopotamia, but up here, in, still technically Mesopotamia, but really um, up here. Now, remember, there's bad theology in Ur, Mesopotamia. Joshua 24 says, put aside the gods you've been worshiping from Mesopotamia and all over the place. We have these Marduk gods. Again, these are man-made gods. Angry, frustrated, whining, fighting, and struggling, and, and, and mankind is an insignificant slave, according to them. These are the gods that man made. Israel's God, Yahweh, is the God that made man, right? So Genesis and Exodus are theologically corrective because they're coming out of a theological confusing area. Well, they go down to Canaan, to the promised land, which is right here, and there's bad theology there. These people in Canaan look around and they say, wow, it rains and things grow. And they attribute that to Baal, the fertility god, the god of rain, the god of storms. Which is not true, it's just how they, how they think about it. In fact, it's such a big deal in the Old Testament. God wants them to understand where does fertility, fruitfulness come from. He puts it in a verse. This is a classic verse full of fertility. Look at this. He will, God will love you, he will bless you, he will multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock, in the land that he swore to your fathers to give to you. Deuteronomy 7.13. Deuteronomy happens before they go into the land, and he's just saying, it's like a timeout. The team comes to the sidelines, and he's like, okay, you got to understand this. You're going to cross the river, you're going to see grapes, fertility, fruitfulness, and they're going to say it all comes from Baal. And remember, in this culture, they understand gods to be kind of connected to nation. So when you go from one nation to the other nation, the automatic assumption is, well, which god is here? Because our god's over there. Well, the god Baal is here, and he's in charge of all this, and Yahweh is like, okay, going to blow your minds here. I'm everywhere. I'm not bound by any religious, national, political boundaries. I'm everywhere, and all fertility comes from me. That was a big shift for them. You and I, we have phones, and we can see what's going on in Madagascar this morning. What's the temperature in Madagascar? You could find that in 13 seconds, the temperature in Madagascar. Don't do it because you'll get distracted. But anyway, that's kind of what we're, we're talking about. Well, then they go from Ur, where there's bad theology, to Canaan, where there's bad theology, down to Egypt, where there's bad theology. You see what I'm going here? Everybody has theology. Not all theology is biblical, all right? So, Abraham receives God's grace. Abraham goes to the promised land, and what does he find in the promised land? He finds a famine. Now, now you, do you see what's going on here? Abraham, I promise to give you fruitfulness, fertility, and a, a lot of kids in this one land. 
By the way, it's the land that is self-identified as a land of fertility, and they attribute it to Baal. So Abraham, God's representative, shows up in the land of fertility only to find a famine. Interesting. Raises the question, where does fruitfulness come from? Abraham hasn't figured out yet how to walk in faith because he's new at this. It's all new. So he panics. He hits the panic button and he flees to Egypt, lies about his wife, only to learn slowly that, oh, faith is what God wants. And whenever you need faith, it means something's going terribly wrong. <laughs> and I'm going to want to panic. Have you figured that out yet? Whenever you really need faith, it means something else is going sideways, and you're like, what is going on? I'm not in control. He's learning how to walk in faith, and I'm glad to be able to see it. So God told Abraham, go, and he went. Later on, God told Moses, go, and he says, no. Who are you? Who am I? What am I supposed to say? I'm not super eloquent. And finally, Moses is like, just send someone else. Really? God is talking to you, asking you, and, and you're like, no? Wow, that's interesting. So, Abraham is afraid of the future, and God's promise to him is comforting. Moses is afraid of his past, his inadequacy, and God's presence. Multiple times, God says to Moses, I will be with you. His presence is comforting to Moses, okay? Okay. So they become slaves, remember last week, because there's a new king that doesn't know Joseph, probably the Hyksos people, for 200 years, they came and then they left, but the Israelites were enslaved, so they need to get out, and that sets the stage for, for Israel, uh, for the Exodus, okay? So, during that time, they came out of Exodus, they stopped at Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. Did you know there was two sets of Ten Commandments? The first one, Moses goes up, he gets it, and, and in the meantime, Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, Aaron, and, and they start worshiping the golden calf. And if you read that passage, it's just a bit childish, Aaron's excuse. I don't know what happened, Moses threw, threw in the jewelry and the rings and popped out a golden calf. That's, that's how intelligent it sounds, like, well, what do you mean it popped out? It just happened? No, Aaron, stuff, idols don't just happen. And so uh, Moses was so angry, he broke the Ten Commandments. He was the first person to break all Ten Commandments. He didn't really break them, <laughs> but he broke them. See? All right. That's who did that. Anyway, in the midst of that, we, we get another glimpse into who is God. Because, I mean, if God gave you the Ten Commandments and you're angry and you smash them, have you ever smashed something in anger? Oh, man, I remember we were once working on a rental house. I don't know what the deal was. I was so wrapped around the axle and frustrated. I was trying to put in some dome light or something. I just, I hate to say this. It's just going to ruin about a month of my credibility. But I was so frustrated and angry. I took this thing and I just smashed it to the ground. A million pieces. It didn't help anything. But, you know, you've been there too. We just get so frustrated, right? And so instantly there's this shame. And then I got to tell Donna, like, what? Well, it's obviously, it didn't just slip anyway, so she's pretty cool about it. Anyway, so Moses breaks the Ten Commandments, and, and, and oh, what about the, the fear? What is God going to say? In that context, look at this. This is Exodus 34, um, where Moses and God 
are interacting. And it says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin. Wow, what a gracious God. When you just have no excuse, you're angry and you just smash him, he's like, I am merciful and gracious. That's not like any of the gods in Mesopotamia. It goes on, though, and it says, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, that verse, I'm going to stop here and kind of explain that because that, that can get in our heads and we're like, oh, man, I'm toast because my great-grandpa, he, he did these things. And so the verse says that God hates me because great-grandpa was an idiot. That's not how, that's not, that's not how it rolls. Um, this, this language, first off, um, the, the language, the iniquity of the fathers is literally the evil activity of the fathers. The evil activity of the fathers sticks with all the future generations for three or four generations. Fathers practice things, kids pick it up. Third and fourth generation isn't a time frame. It's not, you don't set a timer. It's a an idiom in this culture for the family. Family, family, family. Your whole family, your, your, your descendants. It's, it's part of who you become. And it says in, in Exodus 20, this is where this verse is coming from, and that's the original Ten Commandments. It says the similar kind of thing, but it's in the context of idolatry. It says, you shall not make a carved image of anything that is on heaven or, or on earth. Don't bow down to them. Don't serve them. I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers, the evil of the fathers, on the children. So that's how that works. But showing steadfast love to thousands, not just three or four generations, but thousands of generations to those who love me. So my question here is, I love and hate. Well, who's hating God? The context here is a graven image. It's idolatry. When we have an idol, we love the idol more than we love God. That's what an idol is. We take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing, and God is the only ultimate thing that deserves our full love and devotion. So when we are loving an idol, we're actually hating God. That's the context here, okay? We are all designed to work and worship, and we are worship machines. Like I've said before, everybody's making disciples. Every single person on the planet is making disciples. It's just that they're not making them of Jesus. They're pointing to their 401k or to freedom or to political whatever. But everybody points to something or someone and says, this is where you find hope, joy, meaning, value, purpose. And Jesus is the only one worthy of our, our discipleship allegiance. Okay, so I use that term loosely because in the New Testament, disciple simply means learner follower. Uh, the Pharisees had disciples. Well, here in the same broad way, everybody is worshiping. We're all worship something, somebody. So here's, it might not go well, but talk to somebody at the coffee shop. It's like, well, how's your worship going? Well, what do you mean? Well, what do you point to that gives you lasting meaning, value, and purpose and hope? That's what you worship. It probably won't go well, but anyway, we could do that. So when we worship idols more than God, we hate God. And uh, remember, God designed us as male and female to work and worship, pointing to him, pointing other people. He is the source that's good. He is good. He's nothing like these other gods that you know about. We should follow him, serve him. But when fathers 
sin and, and, and the, especially with idolatry, we, we hate God, we love these idols, we're, we're saying, this is my life. This is where I find my life. Children, pick that up. We broadcast, we teach, this is where you want to put your energy. This is what will give you hope and give life. And sin sticks with us and, and little kids. If you have little kids, I've told you this before, I'll tell it again, because we may, I think we have a, one visitor, so it gives me an excuse. Couple drive, you know, uh, usually the mom takes the kids to school, remember this one? And this time she's busy, the dad, no, it's the other way around. The dad usually drives them, he's busy, so mom is driving the kids to school, halfway there, kid in the back is like, mom, we're all the idiots. Because the dad usually drives and comments about the idiots. Okay, anyway. So the point is, if you've had little children, you, you get, they, they start repeating things that you do, and you're like, oh, well, how did you hear me say that? Or why do you do this? And that's just part of the humility that we develop as parents, and we, we lean in the grace of God, and, and, and it works out. Anyway, sin follows us around because sin is it's a, it's a way of thinking, of reasoning, of valuing, and the sin shapes our thoughts and our values and it shapes our path and we're walking down a specific path because of sin and other people especially in our little kids in, in our homes see that and they start to go this is how we live because this is how mommy and daddy live and 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 that's an opportunity for redemption i'll put it that way so um, that's what that verse is meaning but uh, exodus goes on and and remember why should we worship Yahweh? Because the Ten Plagues, he's powerful because the Ten Commandments, he's revealed himself, unlike the gods in the culture. And so um, this is something that we want to never forget as we're thinking about the Ten Commandments and the law. Israel's covenant obedience was a response of gratitude to the grace of God. It was not a burden through which they toiled to earn salvation. Remember, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, were given in the context of relationship. The Ten Commandments don't create the relationship. They're not expectations to have or not have a relationship. They have a relationship, and this is the way they're going to regulate the future of their relationship. So that's a super important um, concept to get in our heads. All right? So now, when we get into Exodus and Deuteronomy, we have this covenant language that I've mentioned before, and I don't want to lose you with, with you know, $5 words like suzerain vassal covenant treaty, because you're like, uh, blah, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. Basically, there was an overlord, a powerful figure like God, and in their culture, that was called a suzerain. I don't even know what it means, but a powerful overlord. And the servant, the dependent weaker people, were called vassals. That would be Israel, okay? Um, now, if you and I are making a deal, we're both humans and we're equal, so that would be called a parity treaty, and we do deals. You give me that, I'll give you this. But this is not like that because God is powerful and Israel is not. So you would have this, this power differential in their covenants, and in this culture, these covenants would make family member responsibilities out of people who had no family connections. God would take somebody who doesn't belong to him, Abraham, and say, I'm going to make you just like family. And I'm going to be devoted to you just like family. Think of marriage or adoption, right? When, you're, when you get married, you form a family, legal, binding relationship that didn't exist before. And now because you're married, you, you have obligations and responsibilities. It's kind of like that, okay? That might help. So God adopts Abraham and his children. He said, Israel's my firstborn son. And um, he promised them land, offspring, and blessing. And he says, in order to experience that, because you're facing an enemy that, is, that you can't face on your own, you have to trust in me. Otherwise, you're, you're dead where you stand. 
So that was how we got through the book of Exodus. Now Exodus ends the last 15 chapters or so are just tabernacle, 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 tabernacle. And if you're reading, you're like, so anyway, but the, the last chapter of Exodus, God indwells a tabernacle, which is great, except for if you're there. I mean, if you're there as an Israelite and, and you're not holy at all, and God is next door and he's very holy, your question should be, uh, Moses, how do I not get consumed by his holiness? I don't want to just be evaporated by his holiness. Like, you got a you gotta tip, Moses? And he's actually, yeah. The answer to that is Leviticus. The entire book of Leviticus is a system of temporary until the seed should come, laws that allow you to live in the presence of a holy God. Leviticus to them is amazingly good news. We get to live because of these procedures. You and I read them and we're like, just, just like, what in the world? I don't understand it. Pigeons and blood and earlobes and all this stuff. Anyway, um, so that's exactly what uh, Leviticus is answering that question, okay? He's revealing himself. Again, God is gracious because he's like, you guys need to know this stuff about me. And so he's, he's offering it out. He's approaching them and helping them understand. Uh, anyway, all of Leviticus takes place at Sinai. And then we get to the book of Numbers. Now, Numbers starts at Sinai. And there's a verse here. I'll read it to you. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines. That's where the X is. Although that was shorter. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see and return to Egypt. So God was like, you're not taking the short direct way because you're going to run into the Philistines. And they also have big guns and they're big guys and they will kill you. And if you don't know how to trust me, you're dead. So you're going to go on this long curriculum. It's called Faith 099. Now, if you're an academic person, you know that the, the, the 100, like English 101, that's a college level thing. But if somehow you never figured out English and you're in college and you can't quite cut the first, then you get 099. It's sort of remedial. So this is a 38-year remedial faith course. Faith 099. Just like 38 years. Just keep walking. Just keep walking and, and learning some stuff. The manna every day, but not enough for a week. One day at a time. The, the cloud. Do we go or do we not go? Do we go or one day at a time? And so, wow. Um, <laughs> that had to be hard to live then. I'm glad, I, I'm glad I wasn't born then. So that's the story of Numbers. Numbers, they wander all around and they, it ends not in Canaan, just outside of Canaan. Okay? So that's where he's going. Now, in the book of Numbers, something important happens. <laughs> all the males, 20 years old and older, die as they're wandering around. It's not everybody, just the men 20 years old and older because those are the ones that have been shut. Men and women are of equal value before God, but God has different responsibilities. It seems to be from Scripture when something happens in a relationship that God holds the man accountable to for that in a way that he doesn't hold the woman accountable. When Sarah laughed, God doesn't go to Sarah, he goes to Abraham. When Eve sinned, God goes to Adam. And here, the men bear the, the, the penalty for the lack of faith for the community. So anyway, um, but they, they died. The 20-year-old, they, they all died. And I did some math here. So there's 603,550 men. 38 years, you divide it, you get 1.8 deaths per hour for 38 years. Just under two deaths per hour. 
Now, I used to be a teacher, I guess I still am, but anyway, teachers like to review, right? Review, 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 and, and put little things in to help people remember. And, and if someone's dropping dead two people every hour, eventually it's going to sink in. You're going to be like, so, Grandpa, what's with all the... Oh, I don't have a Grandpa. Grandma, what's with all the dead people? Well, if we don't learn how to trust God on the way to Canaan, well, we're going to die in Canaan. We have to trust God. And these people, these men, didn't trust God. And he's reminding us the only way we're going to have land, a lot of offspring, so that God can bless the world is if we trust him. Because we're facing an enemy that we can't possibly engage on our own strength. We have to have the, the supernatural power of God. And that comes through trusting him. So that's kind of what's, what's going on there. All right, and then we get to the book of Deuteronomy. Um, actually, first, the spy mission. This, this is a spy mission. that They, they went all the way down here to, from Kadesh Barnea, all the, all the way up here to Lebo. I used to think as a kid, I hear the stories as a kid, and I just pictured a, a fence like a backyard with a hole in it, and I pictured the spies looking through the hole for 40 days. I don't know why we get these things in our head, right? I, how have you thought about it? But did you know they went hundreds of miles? They, they were the whole land. They spied the whole place out, and they saw big people, and they come back, and they're like, we can't go in this, there's big people. And God, he's, he's a lying suzerain. He cannot deliver us from those big people. He cannot, he's, he's hoodwinkled us. Hebrew. Anyway, so that is, that is the, uh, the spy mission there. That's what's going on there. And did you know, because they spent 40 days spying out the land, seeing God's goodness, and they conclude 10 of the 12 said, we can't do it. God said, one year for every day you saw my gift to you because it's faith 099. You don't have the faith to go in there. And so it's not just punitive. Actually, the 40 years of wandering is his grace because if you take the shorter way and get right in there and start to encounter the Philistines, the Canaanites, you're dead. Because you're facing an enemy you can't face on your own strength. And that is so true of us today too, right? We can't face the spiritual battles, the enemies we have that are working 24-7 to destroy you and destroy me. We can't fight those on our own. We have to have faith in God and believe what he says about us. And so... Um, Deuteronomy, it all happens right there. Start, they don't move around or it's just right there, the plains of Moab. And that's, um, that's Moses leading that. But now here's an interesting thing, because remember way back in Genesis, you had circumcision, the, the sign of the covenant with Abraham and all your descendants. And it says very clearly, I think I have a verse here somewhere. Um, anyway, it says, it, throughout all your generations, every male shall be, uh, carry the sign of the, of the covenant or you don't belong to me. And so this, pause, New Testament, hundreds of years in the future, this is why the Pharisees are like, you got to be circumcised, you got to be circumcised, because the Bible says, if you don't have the sign of the covenant, you don't belong to him. So that, that was their approach. They just didn't know that Jesus made everything new. So that was Paul's that thing. So back here to the Old Testament. So Moses is their leader, but not even Moses' son is carrying the sign of the covenant. Well, that's awkward. I mean, it's just like you're representing God and, and, and yet your own son, what, you want him to still get a degree from Egypt and get scholarship from Egypt so he doesn't belong to Israel? With no, so anyway, it's, it's a bit awkward there, okay? So this whole thing, if, if, you were, if you leave Egypt and you're two years old and you wander for 40 years, you are 42 years old, but you know nothing about the covenant. All you know is manna and a cloud. 
And you're like, a bunch of people talking about something great a long time ago. And so there's a need at the end of that wandering, when you, you're done wandering, for a renewal of the law. So Deuteronomy, when two people sing, it's called a duet. Duet, namos, second law. It's not a whole different law. It's the same law given the second time. Because these little kids, they don't know what's going on. And so God, again, reaches out and he extends his grace to them. This is who I am. This is who you are. And this is why you should worship me. He's still answering these questions, okay? These are the questions the Pentateuch is seeking to answer. So that's God's grace to them. So... Part of this cultural, this treaty I was talking about between the overlord and the, and the dependent is that the overlord would promise them things like land, offspring, and blessing, but the, the, the weaker one would be obligated to only have one suzerain or overlord. That was just their culture. Because if you left and, and grabbed another one, it's like, well, get over there then, enjoy his benefits, but you're not getting my benefits playing double, it, it, like think of a, of a husband or wife that's unfaithful. You're like, what are you doing? This is, this is the covenant that, that you belong together and you can't have another wife. That, no, that's not what I signed up for and that's not how the universe works. So vassals could only have one overlord, okay? So here is something pretty significant. So uh, geek out with me here. This is just the basic components of this covenant. And this Archaeologists only discovered this in the past 200 years. So we're lucky. I know, this, this blesses your soul, right? Anyway, um, typical elements in this Susan Vassal Covenant. There's a preamble which said, here are the parties, here's God, and, and here's Israel. Uh, the historical prologue. Now that's rich because that is full of verbs. Like when God goes through this, he's like, I gave you this. I delivered you from this. I fed you. I led you. I guided you. I defeated. And so all this stuff. Now if... If I called Larry up here and I said, hey, Larry, um, remember when I let you borrow my lawnmower? And remember when I, I, I gave you a gift card to go to Olive Garden just for free? And remember when and remember when? And he, he's like kind of creeping out like, what, what, what's coming? Like, what do you want? That's the purpose of the historical prologue. When God has done all these things for Israel, it's natural for Israel. Like, okay, yeah, you're right. What do you want? Number three, the stipulations. That's what God wants. This is the context of the law. I've done so much for you as the suzerain. You need to do these things. And the blessing and formula, if you follow me, you'll be blessed. If you run off to another suzerain, another wife, you'll be cursed. The list of witnesses, so you can't say, oh, I never knew. Yeah, you can. Everybody's seen this. This is a public deal. So this is how this rolls. Now watch this. The outline of Deuteronomy. Exact same content. God told Moses, write this in the legal structure of their world so everybody gets it. Look at that, chapter number three. Chapters four to 26, the bulk of Deuteronomy is sinking its teeth into, this is what I expect of you, okay? Now, one more step here. It's gonna get a little full on the screen. But you take these stipulations and it boils down to three simple things. Remember Yahweh, be faithful to Yahweh, and put away non-Yahweh gods. Okay? It's all about faithfulness to your one covenant. And even down here in Joshua 24. Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away, look at this, put away the gods your father served beyond the river in Egypt. Choose this day whom you will serve. So you have these things, fearing him is like remembering him. Being faithful to him is like being faithful. And put away the gods is like put away the gods. So this, this is Joshua's mind, or Moses' mindset, and this shapes the entire book of Joshua. So um, one thing I want to point out here, the blessings and cursings. 
when they obeyed, they were victorious. God is encouraging them. This is how you're going to have more victory when you trust me. When you disobey me and you run away from your only suzerain covenant provider, you're going to have defeat. So when we flip the page next week and we get into Joshua, would it be reasonable to expect whenever they have victory that we should be expecting, oh, there must have been obedience? Yeah. And, and whenever there's defeat, should we look in the story and go, well, I bet there's disobedience here. Yes, that's exactly how it works, and that's what we'll unpack, we'll unpack next week. So, wow. So there's a lot of stuff here. So Joshua is supposed to get this land. How is he supposed to get it? By faith, right? Remember Abraham. Go to the promised land that's full of flourishing and fruit, and he finds famine. He has a choice. Do I fight in faith and struggle through this, or do I flee with no faith and go to Egypt? He went to Egypt, but he's learning, all right? Israel in the wilderness. It's desolate and barren. How do we do this? By faith, the manna, the clouds, one day at a time. So Joshua, how are they supposed to get the land? By faith. It's the only way you're going to face an enemy that you cannot possibly face on your own strength. And we face an enemy that knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what buttons to push. He knows when to push them. And we cannot deal in our own strength or wisdom with the enemy we face. We're in a spiritual war, and we have to have faith. And again, remember the first slide up there? If you want experiencing grace, growing in healthy relationships, and impacting others, you can't get there without knowing God and his word. That, that's, that's where it starts. So I, I, I plead with us to, to get into God's word in, in a life-giving, non-legalistic way. You know what I mean? Um, whatever seconds or minutes you can, you can get. Maybe there, Anyway. There's a lot of stuff we can do with um, podcasts and stuff to get our head around it. So, fight or flight. How do you switch from fighting a spiritual battle with the flesh to the spirit? How do you, how do you learn to fight with the spirit? Here's the answer. It's what we do. This is how you shift from engaging the enemy on a fleshly basis to a spiritual basis. Starts with God's word, all right? So, my question's to you. We'll have music here in a few seconds, and we always have a little bit of quiet time just to slow down and think, because that's kind of a rare commodity today. Do you need to switch your battle tactics from the flesh to the spirit, and which of these following, really right now, in your season of life, which, which one is most needed? And what might the Lord have you do to address that? That's kind of where we're going to go, and, and um, we'll, we'll trust that he has an answer for us. Lord, thank you. For your word, thank you that you put obstacles in our path on purpose to help us learn to trust you. We face an enemy that we cannot engage successfully on our own. Teach us to trust you with the pressures we face, the challenges, the battles. Uh, may we learn patience and rest in your timing and just find comfort in who you are, your good you, you come to us and you offer us the way of salvation while we hate you. On our worst day, you are seeking us out. And may we just pause and receive you and your goodness. And I just pray that that would matter in our lives and would change our relationships and provide us opportunities to share with other people. Amen.